Welcome to the Vaccination Station. My name is Dave, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Daniel Wilson. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dave. Happy to be here. Let's start by getting to know you. Can you tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting? Hmm. Well, uh, one thing is that even though I'm a PhD right now, I almost failed uh, high school biology. <laughs> um, I used to be a break dancer in high school and college. <laughs> I used to uh, do a lot of footwork and power moves, but uh, wasn't too great at the whole thing. But uh, yeah. And then the third thing, let's see, uh, it's kind of a funny story, but when my wife and I got engaged uh, in an international trip and we took engagement photos, I ended up having to wear a woman's suit. So that's in our pictures forever. How how did that happen? What was the story there? Well, it's an international trip. And uh, basically my wife packed our bags for us. And she knew that we were going to need some fancy clothes. But uh, when she went to pack those clothes, she ended up packing one of her suits and not one of my suits. And I didn't realize until it was like 10 minutes before we had to take pictures. So... <laughs> My friends uh, did not let us live that down. No, I bet. So where did you study and what are your qualifications and what are you studying right now? Yeah, so um, I got my PhD in biological sciences from Carnegie Mellon University. And for my thesis, I studied how the cell builds uh, its ribosome. So um, the, the molecular mechanisms of how the cell builds a complicated ribonucleoparticle uh, is what I studied. And we used yeast as our model organism. Um, and uh, that was a really complicated and uh, exciting puzzle to put together because there are tons of moving parts. You're working with RNA, you're working with proteins, you're mutating genes, of course. And uh, my lab got to work with uh, actual structures of the ribosome. So that was really cool to actually make mutations and then see the structural effects. Uh, so that was really cool. And of course, ribosomes are necessary for pretty much all life on earth as we know it. So the implications in understanding something so fundamental uh, are hopefully uh, something that everybody thinks is important. So can you just define in layman's terms what a ribosome is and what function it plays in human biology? Yeah, so uh, the ribosome is a, we like to call it a, a nanomachine. It's, a, it's made of two subunits and what it does is it reads the genetic code in the form of mRNA, decodes it, and uses that code to synthesize protein. So it basically turns the information in your DNA into functional units that can actually do work in your cells so that you can uh, stay living and keep on producing things like enzymes and structural proteins that your cells need uh, on, an, uh, on a uh, short notice. 
And and where do they come from? What what actually generates these things? Oh, the ribosomes. So yeah, the ribosomes. So there are genes in this in every uh, cell genome that code for the RNA and the proteins that make up all of the ribosomes. So uh, it's interesting how the ribosome has to actually read the information to produce new ribosomes. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of a, like a, a cyclical thing there. But uh, the cell has to build each ribosome uh, from scratch. And this happens in a really massive process involving over 200 proteins. It still amazes me that science has developed to such a degree that we can drill down and see all these complex little processes occurring and not only monitor them, but get involved and, and adjust them and, and splice them into each other and, and change the way they interact. What kind of tools do you use to adjust genetic code and, and give uh, genes and, and other, you know, other parts of, of the process, uh, the different instructions that you want them to follow out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, in graduate school, we would use uh, pretty much a standard set of uh, tools to manipulate the yeast genome. Um, and part of why we used the yeast uh, was because it's so easy to use uh, genetic manipulation tools on it. But you know, we would uh, just uh, design mutations, mutate the genes on plasmids, transform them into the cells, make sure that the endogenous or the copy, that, copy of the gene that's already in the cell is uh, accounted for so that we're only studying the mutation of the gene that we uh, have mutated and put into the cell. Uh, so it's a pretty easy process. The challenge for us was choosing the right mutations. And that is where we had to get creative and uh, essentially just do a lot of work to test a lot of mutations because uh, a lot of mutations didn't, didn't do what we wanted them to do. So, uh, but once we actually found a good mutation, then we have our standard set of tools to um, purify whole assembling ribosomes. So before the ribosome is mature, we could purify it, look at its composition. We could purify it at different stages along its little assembly path. And we could look at the proteins, we could look at what the RNA is doing, and we could even uh, collaborate with another lab to look at the structure in a cryo-electron microscope. If I want to edit a document in Word, I can open it up and then I can go to whichever part of the document I want to change. I can select and type in new text to alter the text that's already there. I can copy paste images and other text from other files to edit the way the thing looks and the way it, it functions when it's read. I can change the type of text that I, I'm using. All of those tools are sort of built in into Word and then they're all sort of self-explanatory. How do you actually do that then with genes? Because the idea of being able to reach into a gene and tinker with the information is for, for the average person, quite an incomprehensible thing. What are you actually mm -hmm. seeing and reading and using to do what needs to be done? Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. So. 
it, it does sound kind of abstract, right? Uh, but when you, well, when you do it, if someone were to watch someone in the lab doing it, it would look like they're just pipetting clear liquids into clear liquids. But what you're actually doing is uh, you're working off a lot of uh, work that other people have done before you. So for example, if I wanted to, if I were back in graduate school and I wanted to mutate a gene, I would go look at the yeast genome database. So someone sequenced the entire yeast genome and I would search for the gene that I'm interested in and I would find its sequence. Then I would basically go through a process where I take that gene, cut it out of a yeast genome, paste it into a plasmid, and this is all done using enzymes. <laughs> so certain enzymes will cut genes at, cut DNA at specific spots, depending on what the enzyme is. And that took many years for people to figure out which enzyme cuts where. And now it's all, now it's all easy if an undergraduate can do it. Once you put, paste that gene into a plasmid, then you can uh, basically use a, it's kind of a kit setup where you order what we call primers or oligos that um, encode the mutation you want, right? And so when you do a PCR reaction on this plasmid, on this gene in a certain protocol, these primers will amplify the gene, but when it amplifies it, it'll include the mutation that you've encoded in the primer. And so the primer is actually made from a company. So that step is also um, working off the work of other people. So it's a very communal collaborative effort, but when all said and done, it's pretty easy to actually do. So you've got access then to a genetic library that tells uh -huh. you where to find the, the, the things you need to find and and what they do uh you've also got access to the information about how the different biological tools work uh mm -hmm. and these biological tools are basically the same tools that the body uses we've just now managed to gain access to them and we can we can do them in in the lab and you just select the right tools for the job and apply them to the right combinations of substances and you get what you want. I don't know. I know that sounds yeah, it's... grossly oversimplified, but it, it's, it seems to be sort of a summary of, of, of what you're doing. Yeah. And, I, and I'm simplifying too, but uh, yeah, natural th things that uh, either the human body does or that bacteria can do. A lot of the enzymes that we use to cut DNA come from bacteria. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's really cool. And I should say uh, I've moved on from graduate school. I've, uh, earned my degree and I'm no longer at Carnegie Mellon. And now I work for a biotech company. And that just involves me doing a lot of different projects, uh, testing, essentially testing things that are in the pipeline to make sure that they're, that the people putting those products through clinical trials know certain things about them, that they have good data going into their clinical trials. This, this is really fascinating, and I, and I think it's an area that deserves a lot more attention because one key issue that I see in the general field of, of science communication, being someone who's not even a scientist myself, is that people don't understand what's actually done in the big mysterious labs where, you know, science is done and uh -huh. they don't know the practical ins and outs. And what they see in movies and on TV is typically unrealistic and, and weird. So there's lots of blue yeah. lights and 
and pipettes and you know unnecessary stuff that you guys don't actually do and yeah weird piece of technology that don't even exist doing things that we can't even do. Um, and this is supposed to communicate to, to the viewer what actually happened in real life, what is completely far removed from that. Mm-hmm. But what you're describing is a process in that in many ways is actually very natural and quite mundane. It just happens to be that you're doing it in a lab rather than inside a living organism. Yeah. It's, I mean, it doesn't, once you do it a couple of times, it's really not that exciting, <laughs> but uh, at least not to watch or do, but the results are what's really cool. And that's where a lot of creativity comes into science. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't often talk about. It's not just, you know, uh, robotically doing experiments. You have to actually think about like, okay, what, what question do I want to ask and how am I going to answer it? Uh, you know, how am I going to uh, design a set of experiments that adequately answer this biological question that I want to ask the world, basically. Uh, So scientists have to think differently. They have to try to like really sort of bang their head against the wall at some point because uh, it's not easy to just pick up a pipette, do an experiment and make a discovery. You have to really know your field and get lucky, but also luck, luck favors the prepared mind. So you have to be, you have to be really on and creative to find something new. And that's the excitement that drives a lot of scientists. This is where I'd, I'd really like to see a lot of science communication going. For example, say a short video that explains the process actually brings two or three people, just average people off the street into a lab. And the scientist says, this is what we are working with. This is our experiment. This is what we're hoping to achieve. Mm. Now follow me as I demonstrate to you the process that's actually involved. So you've got regular people just in there in the lab observing what's going on and, and the scientist explaining it bit by bit just to demystify the process and and sort of bring it back down to planet earth for the people who like me who who have no experience or or training in this kind of field and i think for people to see it done in real life in in this you know as you say this this very straightforward mundane setting would demystify a lot of it and reassure people that you know scientists are just regular people getting on with doing their own regular job Mm-hmm. just as everyone mm-hmm. else does their regular job every yeah. day. It's just that this particular job is just a bit weirder and, a, and uh, in, in some ways a bit more complicated than, than other everyday jobs. But there's nothing actually sort of mystical and secretive and sort of, you know, sci-fi about it. It's mm-hmm. actually very interesting and has great practical applications for everyday life. And that's the other thing, the disconnect between what people perceive scientists doing away in their labs and what everyday life or what humans and society we really need. Mm -hmm. They they forget that actually scientists every day are working on things that society needs and that most of what we have today wouldn't be here if if that hadn't been done in the first place. Right. Yeah. It's, it is kind of a black box for most people. Uh, uh, No one really knows what goes into this kind of work. And uh, I think it, 
shows and when, when the general media reports on science, uh, unfortunately, it's all it's it misses a lot of the the nuance and uh, it kind of adds to the mystification of science, in my opinion. But that would make a great reality show to bring people into a lab and uh, just show them stuff and see their reaction. And I don't know, maybe maybe people wouldn't watch it, but I would watch it. <laughs> I certainly would, and, and I'm pretty sure uh, most of my audience would as well, because I, I think that uh, has great potential as a an educational tool, and you know you could show it in schools and stuff. Mm -hmm. So your field of specialization is biology, in particular. I say molecular biology. biology. Molecular bio biology. Mm -hmm. And you work then primarily with uh, genes. Yeah, in graduate school, I worked with uh, genes, RNA, proteins, yeah, that sort of thing. So how did you become interested in science as a career? Oh, so, well, my mom is a scientist, and so she always kind of instilled a scientific curiosity in me. She would take me out into the field. She was an environmental uh, biologist, so she would go out and, like, you know, assess the health of streams, uh, for example. And so she would take me out in the field sometimes and I would help her look for bugs in the stream to assess the health of the stream. And so I, that instilled, you know, just a scientific curiosity in me from a young age. And then I never lost that, I guess. Uh, it almost, I almost lost it in high school when I almost failed a biology course, but somehow I found it again. And then I just kind of fell into it. I was like, I, I like biology, so I'm going to go to college for biology. And then I met a really great professor in college, and he was like, you should get your PhD. And I was like, okay, well, what, what is that? <laughs> I didn't know at the time really what that, what that path looked like. But, you know, I, I'd say just a series of good role models and really good teachers helped me uh, get interested in a career in science. And eventually I had my own reasons of seeing the practical application that science has and just becoming intensely interested in the problems that it tries to solve. And what advice would you give to anyone who's considering a career in science? I'd say go for it. I mean, it's honestly not easy. Um, and if you uh, go the PhD route, there are definitely lots of challenges that, um, you know, <laughs> you would need to talk with a PhD student one-on-one -on -one about uh, to, uh, you know, kind of expect those things. But, uh, I mean, it's, it's really rewarding to go into a lab, just tackle a problem that uh, you are at the forefront of, that you are an expert in, because when you're getting your PhD, that's what you are. You are, you're in, in a lab under the guidance of uh, an expert in their field, training you to be an expert as well. And you're working on problems that are at the forefront of your field. So you could find something that is genuinely new. And in my opinion, uh, the most exciting thing about science is that moment in the lab when you uh, get some new results and you're just analyzing them and you see them and you realize that 
hey, you just, you just like uh, got a big break in your project and you're, no matter how minuscule, no matter how like, how, how small of a brick in the wall your finding is, you're like the first to know when you see that finding. And that's really cool. So, I mean, I'd say, yeah, it, it's definitely challenging, but don't be afraid to go for it. Um, if some, if a teacher tells you something like, maybe science just isn't for you or some garbage like that, don't listen to them because you can be good at science if you want to be good at science. I've spoken to quite a few scientists and doctors on this podcast, and you are one of many of them who've said that that, that critical eureka moment, that exciting spark, mm -hmm. the breakthrough is one of the things that really uh, motivates you in, in your work and makes it all sort of worthwhile. That's where you, you finally feel that it's all come together and you've, you've seen the, the fruition of the, the work you've been putting in and Obviously, people can relate that to their own careers, even if, they, even if they don't work in science or medicine. We've all got breakthrough moments in, in our various careers. I think what's fascinating about science, though, is that the kinds of eureka moments that scientists have are the ones with the potential to really change the course of human history in very profound ways and potentially change the course of human evolution even by helping to, to develop our species and potentially lead it on a uh, on a new and more exciting path yeah i mean it science has incredible potential to just make life better for everybody i mean that's the ultimate goal of so many research projects to understand a disease better so that we can treat it or to directly develop medications for a disease that doesn't have good treatments. That's the hope. So tell me about your most recent research and its practical applications. <clears throat> so uh, right now I'm not uh, doing research per se. I'm working for uh, a biotech company that, uh, but my role in that company is, uh, you know, essentially helping products and drugs that are in the pipeline uh, to make their way to market um, and make sure that they're the data that people have, the, the data that the people have who are bringing those drugs to market are good and uh, they know uh, that their product is safe. Um, so, you know, uh, vaccines, uh, gene therapies, things like that are what uh, I work on now. Um, but yeah, if you would want me to talk more about my research in graduate school, I could do more of that. Um, yeah. Well, then just give us a, a little overview of your research in, in graduate school and how that contributed in a practical way to the, you know, the broader field of, of, of knowledge. Cause I understand that's the, the purpose of a, of a thesis to add to, uh -huh. to the body of knowledge in a particular field. Yeah. So, the basic premise of uh, my thesis was when I was entering the lab, uh, the lab that I entered had just recently published um, the highest resolution structure of a immature uh, large subunit ribosome. Uh, so by doing that, they saw a bunch of different proteins that were bound to this 
ribosome for the first time. And they were in really interesting places. Uh, interesting places, for example, being like the exit tunnel that comes out, proteins come out of the ribosome. They, they use the tunnel to come out of the ribosome, sorry. Or the enzymatic center of the ribosome that actually catalyzes the reaction to add another amino acid to a protein and keep building that chain, uh, which eventually comes a full protein. So the question was like, what are these uh, proteins doing there? Are they helping these crucial parts of the ribosome form? And these are ancient, ancient parts of the ribosome. Uh, the enzymatic center is probably one of the first uh, things that formed in the evolution of uh, the history of life. Uh, so we really wanted to know like, how, how are these proteins helping these centers form? And uh, are they even doing that? <clears throat> so I focused on mutating parts of proteins that were touching these really important uh, functional centers, we called them. And just, uh, just studying how those mutations affected the assembly pathway. And so the implication of that is when cells can't make enough ribosomes, uh, you get sick, especially during uh, development. So a lot of diseases that deal with ribosomes uh, we don't actually see them because they are embryonic lethal. The fetus, it, these proteins are so important to the function of a cell that the fetus does not replicate very far and it, it ends up dying. Uh, but diseases that deal with ribosomes that in children who are born, uh, they usually present with like anemias or uh, uh, things like that. Uh, there are multiple other diseases that... Uh, have multiple facets, but uh, an anemia is a big one for uh, ribosome pathways that we, uh, which is what we call them. And interestingly, they, when these people who have these ribosomopathies and are anemic grow up, they're more likely to develop leukemias, uh, blood cancers. And that's interesting because the ribosome is important to all cells in the body. So why would a mutation that uh, affects its production only affect blood cells? Why would it not affect all cells in the body or does it affect all cells in the body? And so it's questions like that, that we're trying to add understanding to by understanding how the ribosome is built. You mentioned that your lab had taken the the highest at that point the highest resolution image of mm -hmm. a ribosome i can't even begin to comprehend how small a ribosome must be <laughs> can you explain to me how you capture an image of a ribosome and what sort of resolution we're talking about here yeah so um you essentially need a really big microscope you <laughs> you need a you need to use an electron microscope in order to uh, see, excuse me, in order to see something that small. Um, and so uh, let's see, uh, we're, we're, the level of resolution that we're talking about is uh, about three angstroms. So an angstrom is equal to, um, 
0.1 nanometers. So it's it's really tiny. Uh, you have to. It takes not only a giant microscope, but also it takes imaging. Um, for that paper, there were over 300,000 different particles that were imaged in order to build this structure that was small enough that we can see uh, amino acid side chains coming off of the proteins. So we could know the actual sequence of the protein just by looking at this structure. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it, it's really incredible uh, the things that molecular biologists are able to do now. That, that is just truly phenomenal. I mean, the average person like me, when we think of, of resolution these days, we think in terms of pixels for our, for our monitors and our, and our TVs, or we think of megapixels in terms of digital cameras and our phone cameras. Mm -hmm. But to be drilling down to the level of angstroms and to think that they're even smaller than a nanometer, that that is just utterly mind blowing, and this is a considered a high resolution image in your field. Yeah, that's just incredible. Yeah, yeah. It's the first time I saw it. I I hadn't heard much about um, this kind of electron microscopy, which is called a we used cryo electron microscopy. So, uh, a lot of times, proteins in textbooks are depicted as like little cartoon blobs, but uh, being in that lab spoiled me because uh, all of our proteins we knew this we knew the you know <laughs> atomic structure of so we always represented our proteins in their atomic structure when we thought about our pathways and uh, that was really cool to get to do that what does it feel like for the first time to be able to to look through this instrument and see what's essentially the, the building blocks of life. I mean, to me, this is just like a, a breathtaking experience. It, it is. It's really, I mean, so I will say that what you see through the microscope is not like, you know, the high resolution structure that you end the study with, because in order to get that high resolution structure, you have to have, you have to tell a computer to control the microscope and go around and uh, take pictures of hundreds of thousands of particles. Uh, and that's some, not something a human would have fun doing, but. So the image you, you end up with is a composite. Yeah, because it, yeah. it, it, it takes uh, the, de the electron densities from hundreds of thousands of particles and averages them together. And the more particles you take, the more confident that you can be that the densities are real. Uh, when you end up interpreting them. But when you look through the microscope the first time, it is possible to make out certain features in molecules that are uh, big enough to be seen without, um, without having to take hundreds of thousands of images and get that finer, finer detail. Uh, so that is uh, really cool to look through and see uh, those features. And for us, you know, um, there were certain features of the immature ribosome that we could see that were really important to us uh, just by uh, looking at uh, one particle, for example. You can tell right away like whether or not your particles have gone through a major step in the assembly pathway. And so we could 
know pretty quickly by saying, oh, look, it's, it's blocked there. It's not going past that step. That's really cool. So it, it is, it's crazy to think that things like that are moving at a million miles an hour in our inside of our body, just working incredibly, incredibly fast to uh, make protein constantly to keep us going. So when you think about it like that, it's really, really cool. <laughs> In addition to your professional work, you also have a sort of a, a side gig in science communication. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. How did you get into science communication? Why did you feel that it was something that you wanted to do? So I guess it started uh, in high school um, two on two levels. Uh, one is in high school, I was a pretty, uh, I was pretty into conspiracy theories. Uh, I kind of bought a few hook, line and sinker. And I was, I was pretty obsessed with them. Uh, it was, it was kind of weird to look back on, but um, I've, I eventually moved away from them. And uh, when I moved away from them, I think I kept that curiosity that I think that a lot of conspiracy theorists genuinely have. A lot, of, a lot of conspiracy theorists are genuinely curious. You know, they want to know about the world, but they, I think they might just fall into a trap of, you know, looking at the wrong data, listening to the wrong person, uh, misinterpreting the data in ways that just get them stuck. Um, but when I got out of that mindset, I was able to take that curiosity and go into science and, and you know, apply that and hopefully be a good scientist. So looking back on it, I think that I just thought, you know, if I, what if I never got out of that? What if I didn't have good science communicators? Because at, at the end of the day, it was good science communicators who were patient enough to talk to me or, you know, debate me in a really cringy YouTube comment section. Uh, <laughs> about these things and eventually just chipping away at me, I had to realize like, okay, some, this isn't really fitting. Like this isn't as neat as I thought it would, as I thought it was the world's more complicated than a conspiracy theory. So I really appreciated that. And I thought, you know, what if there are other people like me who are genuinely curious and would make decent scientists, but, they're too entrenched in conspiracy theories. So I was always interested in science communication after that. I always wanted to understand what is so convincing about conspiracy theories and what's the truth behind it. And so I became really interested in learning as much as I can about conspiracy theories and why they're specifically why they're wrong. And as I went through my scientific training, it was really easy to you know, kind of come across a claim about a vaccine, for example, and say, huh, you know, that doesn't make any sense. That's my knee-jerk reaction, but I'm not really sure what the correct answer is. So let me think about it or look up some information. And then I learn something in the process and I say, oh, okay, that's why that's wrong. And that was really fun for me to do. So I think that science communication is not only important for, you know, preventing the spread of conspiracy theories, but uh, 
also, I remember this is the other layer. Uh, I remember something my high school biology teacher said to me, not the one I almost failed the class for, but another one who was much better. Uh, uh, he said that uh, the world doesn't necessarily need more good scientists. We need more good science journalists. Um, and that stuck with me because even now as a scientist, I see uh, I'll read a paper and I'll get, I'll get my impression from that paper. And then I'll see a headline from a news media source about that paper. And I'll say, that's not what that paper said at all. <laughs> but that's what gets reported and that's what people believe. And aside from, from conspiracy theories, when people misunderstand science, that leads to negative consequences. It leads to confusion. It leads to, um, you know, a false sense of security. It leads to just dangerous action. And I think this pandemic has been a really good example of that because science communication has not been great the whole time. There have been, there's been mixed messaging uh, from, you know, authoritative organizations. Uh, there has been uh, unsuccessful messaging, like where I know what they're trying to say, but to other people, it comes across, it just misses the mark. So I really think that scientists need to make more of an effort to make sure that the work that we're doing, that we're spending all this money and all this, all these long hours on is understood by people because at the end of the day, if it's not understood by people, then we're not reaching that goal of creating real change in the world, beneficial change. Thankfully, this didn't happen, but someone could, we could make a vaccine and nobody would believe that it worked and it wouldn't matter. <laughs> you know, that's the extreme, that's, that's the extreme worry. No, I, I really appreciate those uh, observations because I've discussed these issues uh, in the past in, in previous podcasts and there's a, a general agreement among scientists and doctors that there is a, a problem, a disconnect between what scientists tell the media and then what the media tells the public. And there's various reasons for that disconnect and and the blame is occasionally portioned more one way than than the other. But there seems to be the general problem that sort of there's no sort of agreed universal standard for science communication between the two mm -hmm. sides, and it's only been in recent years that media outlets have decided, hey, we actually need to develop a set of protocols for science communication to make sure that we get it right. And maybe we need to allocate one particular staff member to be our science mm. journalist and give them training in, in a bit of science communication so that they know how to communicate what's being said so that when we put it out on, on the page, it's actually accurate and coherent and makes sense and doesn't misrepresent what, what we've been told. The problem, of course, is that every media outlet is ultimately chasing clicks, views, and headlines get clicks and views, and <laughs> headlines do not need to be yeah. accurate to get clicks right. and views. <laughs> so it, there's a bit of a sort of... Um, there's a bit of a of downward spiral created by that that problem. There's a bit of a feedback loop there, whereby 
best practice doesn't always get what the media outlet would describe as best right. results yeah uh, from a uh, from a commercial point of mm-hmm. view but i have seen a few a few places that make make a genuine effort when i started when i sat down and decided to create this podcast i actually looked up online for guides on how to interview doctors and scientists and it was so so hard to find anything that actually told you how to do it and i eventually found uh two two basic good good basic guides on how to interview a scientist or, or a doctor and some basic questions to ask and i've sort of modeled my interview script around that and it, it was just really quite depressing to me frankly to to see that there was so little information on this and that it was not regarded as any kind of priority when i i think it, it really mm-hmm. should be yeah and and i'll tell you i'll tell you right now it's it's not just the media it's the scientists as well because even when i went through my training uh doing my phd uh science communication was not a integral part of the program uh you kind of had to either seek it out seek training on it out yourself or hope that the lab you joined emphasized communication uh well and you know it, it's it's a toss up because a lab might a lab might encourage you to design all of your talks that you give, all the presentations and writing that you do. Uh, it might encourage you to do it one particular way that they think is clear to them or that they think is good for a general audience or just an audience in our own field, whatever it may be. But that doesn't necessarily, uh, that's not necessarily standard across labs, you know, and nobody uh, really tries to get at how effective their communication is. For example, I, I wanted to know what I could do to be a better science communicator when I was in graduate school. And so at conferences, I would talk to other graduate students and say, hey, what does your program do for science communication? And I remember one, one student told me that at their journal clubs where the graduate students get up in front of the department and they present their research uh, so far, you know, where they talk about all the experiments they've done, they've done and what problems they might be having, what findings they might have had already. And at those journal clubs, the audience actually fills out anonymous feedback forms, specifically asking questions on how clear their talk was to them. Because Uh, And it just blew my mind. I was like, why isn't every department doing that? Because what happens when you don't do that is you give a talk at a conference or a journal club and everyone claps at the end. And then the two people who are interested in your talk will say, wow, great talk. I'm really interested in talking to you more. But if you surveyed the whole audience and you find 80% of the people had no clue what you were talking about, then that's going to kind of knock you back in your seat. Like, Oh my God, I, I was not, I was not reaching my, like anybody here. Uh, and that's what this student told me happened to them. They said that their journal club uh, in their department does this. And they were very surprised to get their feedback forms back and see that most people, most people weren't following 
And that tells them that they need to really reassess like how they're presenting information. Because often our research projects are so niche that only, only our lab or our field is gonna really understand it enough to like actually ask good questions. And you know, those are the few people in the audience who are gonna say, great talk, I wanna ask you more questions. But nobody's gonna come up and be like, dude, I didn't understand a word you were saying. That's, you're not gonna get that feedback unless it's uh, implemented in a, that sort of way. So um, there's definitely a lot that the scientific community can do and I think needs to do in order to improve our communication. So how has social media affected the way that you communicate your knowledge and ideas to your audience? So, so it's tough. Uh, it's been a learning process to figure out like what might, what are the best ways to convey information in a video format? Um, and I'm still learning, uh, but I've tried my best to, take out jargon as much as possible. I've tried my best to use as many pictures as possible. If I try to come up with, if I come up with a uh, helpful analogy, I make sure to use that. And uh, most of all, just talk in a down to earth way that, or at least try to, <laughs> that is not like some character on the Big Bang Theory, you know, where <laughs> you're talking like an egghead using uh, big words, every sentence, uh, that, that, that's a turnoff for a lot of people who want to listen and learn. So I try my best to make science accessible. And I don't like to say dumbing it down because I, I think that's like derogatory to the audience because we're not dumbing it down. We, we, us scientists made it complicated. We made all this jargon and all these like complicated ways of writing and talking about things. So it's our fault. So we have to make it accessible. So uh, that's how I see it. And that's what I try to do. Yeah. It's very different from communicating like slides to a department. Uh, it, it's a, so it's, a, I'm still learning. <clears throat> I, I think accessible is the perfect term to use. And I'm glad you used it because it, it conveys exactly what you're trying to do as a science communicator. You're trying to make the information and the knowledge accessible to someone else so that they can understand it and, and enjoy it and get something from it. But you're also facilitating that comprehension process as well, because you're guiding them through the different steps as you, as you discuss, you know, whatever, whatever topic it is that you're, you're trying to communicate. So you're guiding the process by which, you are imparting the knowledge and, and the way you hope that they will, they will understand it. And you also, you're also slightly changing the shape of the knowledge to make sure that it, it, it fits more easily into, you know, the worldview or, or, or the mind or the language of someone who is coming to it as an outsider, someone who, who is not privy to the, to the jargon and the technical terms of, of your particular field. Now, yeah, as you say, scientists have sort of, complicated their work but of course that sort of comes with a territory because every profession has its jargon and jargon is there because uh within the context of of whatever field you're working in it is efficient it's the best way to communicate complex ideas 
to insiders, it's actually the easiest, simplest way to do things very often. You mm -hmm. can get a lot said in a few words, even if, even if they're slightly larger, multi-syllable words. <laughs> yeah. Everyone knows exactly what you mean. Mm -hmm. You don't have to spend a lot of time unpacking stuff. And that's the same in, in any profession, whether it's right. science, mathematics, art, history, or, or whatever. But once you step out of that realm and you have to try and bring it to an audience that's completely unfamiliar with this language, that's when you just sort of have to sort of run it through a kind of uh, mental dictionary and, and with a side or of a thesaurus and find different words to say what you're actually accustomed to saying in, in very different language. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. It's, it's all about just thinking like if someone read this for the first time, how many words would they have to look up in the dictionary? And do we have to use all those words to explain it? <laughs> like, yeah, and like, and like you, you said, for, for, for peers, for other scientists, yeah, it's easier to use those words, but are they necessary? No. <clears throat> and also deciding which parts of the process need to be described more in more detail. You know, uh, you don't need to describe every step of the way in excruciating detail. You mm -hmm. can hit the key points or you can hit key concepts and you can explain those as you go along. So the audience is, your audience is sort of guided into the topic and you're providing them with a vocabulary to understand these concepts as you go along. Mm -hmm. Right. Let's talk about the pandemic because unfortunately it's still topical. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'd like to know how it's being handled where you live. By you live, uh, where you live, I mean locally, not not just your your country. Oh, okay. Well, where I live now, um, state of Pennsylvania, uh, cases are really low. Yeah, my the county that I live in is in the single digits for new cases, which is great. But I know that a lot of businesses and uh, public places around here have. Uh, said that you can go mask free if you're fully vaccinated. And, you know, that's fine as long as cases stay low, but uh, it's, it, it's, it's this fine balance that I think we're struggling to tread right now between um, confusing progress for victory, right? Like we are at a really good place right now, but that doesn't mean we're always gonna be at a good place. Uh, we There are still unvaccinated pockets of people all over uh, you know, my county, my state, my country, the world. So at any point, a huge explosion of COVID could occur in those unvaccinated populations. And when that happens, you know, we have to be ready. And if we get too relaxed about it, I'd, I'd worry that we won't be prepared despite, despite everything that happened last year. But for the most part, uh, things are going really well in, in my area. It's, it's looking uh, the best it's been since really the pandemic started. In Australia, the approach has always been to pursue an elimina elimination strategy rather than a mere containment strategy. Yeah. And this was seen as the best approach while a vaccine was being developed because the government said, look, if we can work towards elimination, 
then we can keep the number of new cases low and manageable, which yes. will make it easier for us to roll out the vaccine and also reduce the potential of mutations, mutated strains entering the community. So the strictest measure that's been introduced, of course, is the closing of our international borders, which was uh, done around uh, May last year. And those restrictions are still current. It, um, there are heavy restrictions on, on entering Australia and quarantine is, is obligatory. But even more difficult, uh, it's even more difficult to leave the country. Even if you're an Australian national, you need to meet very specific uh, criteria um, and it's quite difficult to meet those for any you know well it's it's impossible to, to meet them for any any sort of trivial reason that's it's really only sort of essential travel that's that's permitted and so that's that's been a um, a significant factor I think in in the um, the approach that we've chosen we currently now have a green travel bubble with new zealand because their their uh, cases are low and our cases are low and it's got to the point where we can travel freely with new zealand with no quarantine but any further than that and you you need permission from the government and you need very specific you know you meet need to meet specific criteria plus in the individual states and territories of Australia have closed their borders to each other on an as-needed basis. Just today, for example, the South Australian government, where I live, we've closed our, our border to uh, at least two states and, and a territory to make sure that we don't get any new cases coming in. Um, so we've been pretty good. In a population of 26 million, mm -hmm. we've had a total of 910 deaths yeah, since the pandemic started. And um, our new cases, you know, our, our rate of new cases is, is extremely low, which is great. Mm -hmm. We came to the vaccine late, much later than you guys. It took a bit longer to get through our regulatory processes. And the government had to make some tough decisions about which vaccines to go for mm -hmm. and how they were going to be allocated to the different demographics. But our, our, rollout is properly underway now and that's going well i've had my first dose of pfizer mm -hmm. and in a couple of weeks I'll, I'll get my second dose and that's great i am hoping that before the end of the year the government will introduce vaccine passports so that people who've had a double dose can actually now travel freely without the need for quarantine and without the need to meet special conditions mm -hmm. um, that that would certainly make a, a huge difference to a lot of us but one interesting thing that we did or, or rather didn't do is we didn't close our schools. And I know that's been a very controversial issue uh, throughout the Western world with different countries taking different approaches on it. Now in Australia, the federal government advised that schools should stay open. And the rationale was that this was to alleviate strain on childcare services and also on families where one or more parents are working and they simply don't have the capacity to to simply shut down and say yeah one parent will stay at home or both parents will stay at home because we we need to look after the kids right and um for us that has worked out now a cup a handful of private schools independently chose to to close for a little while just more out of caution than anything else and in victoria a couple of public schools have been shut on an as needed basis as 
new pockets of, of uh, outbreak have emerged. And depending on their, their level of exposure to those pockets, this is largely out of an abundance of caution because we haven't seen we haven't seen large numbers of, of children catching it here. And we certainly have only a I don't think there's anyone don't think anyone in Australia has died from SARS-CoV-2 under the age of 20. So we've been we've been very fortunate there. But I know in, in other countries like the US and, and the UK, the decision was made to close down schools. But we've seen very different results with that across the world, particularly the, the Western world. What could be the, the reason for that? And, and how does that feed into the overall debate about whether or not closing schools was the right idea? Yeah, yeah. That's a, the issue of school closing is always going to be tough for the reasons you stated. It's, it's hard for parents to uh, deal with that. Uh, what do they do when they have to go to work and their kid can't go to school and their kid is, you know, a, a young, young kid. It's, it's really tough on the parent, especially if they're, uh, don't have much money. So uh, ideally the thing to do would be to not close schools, to keep schools open, but do it right. You know, and, uh, for example, in, in the U S uh, oh, keeping a school opening open and doing it right would look like uh, look something like testing uh, students regularly, mask, making sure they're everyone's wearing masks, uh, making sure that uh, you know people are social distancing as much as possible, uh, that sick people are you know immediately uh, told to not come to school. Uh, but that's not easy for every school to do because not every school has the money to test all their kids or enforce all those rules. Um, and, but, but those rules become more and more important the more, with, the more you have community spread of COVID, right? And so for Australia, you guys cracked down on it. You, you, didn't, you never let community spread reach a level where schools were particularly threatened by, by COVID. So that I think was the key for you guys, but other countries that didn't react as quickly and their community spread was already well underway before they even uh, had a twinkle of a response in their eyes, uh, that, that made it a lot tougher to keep schools open. And in those cases, you know, it, it was probably better to keep schools closed because at that point you just were likely going to increase community spread. And that makes things hard for everybody. Not, you know, nobody wants to, nobody wants to have to not send their kid to school and school is important. Uh, learning at home is different. It's tough for some people. And uh, so that I think just was a really unfortunate, unfortunately tough decision that a lot of countries had to make. It was kind of a lose-lose uh, in a lot of in a lot of ways. But uh, you know, it, it's just it's something that had to be done, unfortunately, in a lot of cases. 
Yeah, I I like the way you've you've put that. The the crucial point is at what stage was the pandemic when the government had to make a decision on schools, and that has differed from mm -hmm. country to country. And so governments have had to make decisions based on their individual circumstances, the extent of the spread, and what the likely vectors are, and the most whether or not the most common vectors have included say you know younger children or, or, or schools or, or whatever so yeah in australia we did lock down early and hard and every time there is a fresh outbreak of of new cases a new lockdown comes in again hard mm -hmm. um localized lockdowns uh, yes. victoria for example recently emerged from a seven-day lockdown that was slightly extended from the original three-day lockdown mm. and and then things back to sort of more or less normal again. Obviously, we're still doing social distancing. Uh, mask mandates have only been used in New South Wales and Victoria and again on an, on an ad need, needed basis. But the lockdowns, I think, have made a, a huge difference. And it's been about containing the spread and making sure that there is no possible way for new vectors to be created and to get beyond the containment area. So for us, you're right, because of that, we had the luxury of being able to keep our schools open. There were some changes that were made, for example, at my local school, they haven't introduced masks, but they did bring in a rule that when you bring your children to school, adults have to remain outside the school ground. So we've got to be outside the fence, outside the gate. When we drop off our kids, we can't go in and sort of, sort of freely enter um into the classrooms anymore okay. so we've got to drop off our kids at the gates and pick them up at the gates if we enter the school grounds we have to check in with um with uh, track and trace because we've got to so we scan the qr code at the school mm -hmm. for track and trace because there's a an um a statewide track and trace system we've also got a, a federal one operating at a, a national level but wherever you go in south australia you scan in so that they can they know where you've been and and they can follow where you where you are and how long you were there and that kind of thing so that's been very useful as well and every school every state school has been given a plan for what to do in in case of an outbreak at the school so deep clean measures and you know how long you the school is closed down for say three to five days all those measures are are ready to go if if they're actually needed fortunately they haven't been needed they um we've been we've been really cool with our, our school we haven't had any any dramas but yeah i think that really highlights exactly what you were saying different countries had to make this decision at different times depending on their circumstances and those circumstances have differed quite radically across the world particularly in in the west mm -hmm. There was also, of course, the big question about whether or not this virus would be more seasonal than, you know, than the average kind of virus. And that appears to have not been the case. It, it does not seem to have been affected significantly by seasons at all. In Australia, we got the virus under control during autumn and winter, for example, mm even allowing for the fact that we're a warmer country and our, our autumn and winters are, are particularly <laughs> aggressive. It did mean that when summer came along, you know, it wasn't a case of we just have to hang out for summer and everything will be okay. We'd already got it under control and and it was all right. We've now been through two summers and uh, summer just didn't help us 
at all. It was it was preventative measures mm-hmm. and community measures that made all the difference. And now, of course, that we have the vaccines, as we're pursuing herd immunity, that will make the biggest difference of all. Right. Yeah. And, and I think an important thing you said there is uh, essentially boils down to it, it's not so much that of a question of whether or not the virus is seasonal. It comes down more to human behavior. So you guys were able to squash the pandemic in autumn and winter uh, because you did the correct behaviors. Uh, but other countries, you know, they, they, they had a lot of community spread. And in the summer, cases were high. In the winter, for example, here in the U.S., cases were higher because people, when it's cold out, they crowd together indoors more often. Uh, there's and there's more likely of a chance for spread. So it's it's calling a virus seasonal kind of misses the real reason of why it's spreading. It's human behavior. So on your YouTube channel, Debunk the Funk, I noticed you've started a series of videos in which you refute a group of people you refer to as the disinformation dozen. Who are these people and why do they need to be refuted? Yeah, so uh, the disinformation dozen, they're, a bunch of my viewers actually uh, sent me articles about this disinformation dozen and it turns out they were 12 individuals that were uh, identified originally by a nonprofit group called the Center for Countering Digital Hate uh, as 12 individuals being uh, responsible for 65% of all anti-vaccine misinformation on the internet. And so when I learned about that, it struck me that such a relatively small group of people was responsible for so much misinformation. And so I thought, well, I mean, I cover, I cover a bit of misinformation every week. Why don't I just march through this list? And I think they, well, they need to be refuted because several of them have essentially risen to, risen to fame during the COVID-19 pandemic by spreading COVID-19 misinformation. And um, I actually hadn't heard of a lot of these people before I started marching through the list. I might've heard their names before, but I didn't really know what they said or um, who they really are. But as I worked my way through the list, I started to realize that a lot of the stuff I had been debunking for months actually probably came from these people because I had only covered four of them before I started doing the series. And yeah, the content that I would debunk along with things I would see written in my comment sections were almost word for word what these people were saying. And they had said it um, first, at least in the timeline that I was looking at. And so they really were the sources of a lot of misinformation and it's painful to hear it repeated ad nauseum. So it, I needed to just go through the list and uh, show why each one of them uh, deserves that title of disinformation. Yeah, on the vaccination station, I've done a similar thing where I've I've started a series of infographics called false authorities where I identify 
various people who who might be rogue doctors or rogue scientists pushing pseudoscience or or some other nonsense typically for material gain uh, or people who set themselves up as authorities on a particular subject and i i've gone through them and with each infographic i give an introduction of who this person is mm-hmm. what they're most noted for uh, a bit of background about some of the things they've done and and whether or not mm-hmm. they're they've got a connection with the anti-vax community and then down the bottom a link to five urls where people can learn more about these these people and it's to reliable sources like um science-based medicine blogs like orex Mm -hmm. blog respectful insolence or skeptical raptor or uh, articles by um uh dorit rubenstein rice for example yes so that people can can find good reliable information on on these people and so they can see that this is where i'm getting my information and then i'm not just you know slandering these people left and right and i i really think that identifying and explaining why these people aren't good actors and and aren't reliable sources of information and aren't the authorities they set themselves up to be um is the most efficient way to combat the information at its source because that has to be done first because if you were only ever addressing the the disinformation itself people can always go back to these these sources and get more disinformation from them and then come back to you with it in many cases people have to be shown your sources of information are not reliable and here is why and if you start to whittle down the number of their sources of information then they are exposed to less and less disinformation and it becomes easier to show them the right information and and actually guide them away from the sources that are, are leading them astray now that's that's one approach and it doesn't necessarily work with everyone with some people you just have to keep playing tennis and batting back the the misinformation that they keep churning out and at some point you can identify false authorities and maybe they'll come around and maybe they won't but i really do think that addressing the sources of disinformation and misinformation really is important because it it gets to the heart of of a bigger issue which is where do you get, get your information from and why do you consider that information reliable? And that cuts to the heart of the way people build their worldview, the way they choose to acquire knowledge, why they put their confidence in that knowledge and why they consider it reliable. And that opens up the area of critical thinking, which allows you another way in to say, hey, here's a different way of thinking about information sources and knowledge and how we acquire it and how we test it perhaps i can recommend a few critical thinking tools that can help you here so it provides another way in to sort of um crack the shell off of the you know the the anti-vax bubble for example and Mm -hmm. address it from a, a number of different perspectives and i found that very useful in my discussions with people yeah i think i think that's a great way to look at it. And especially now, because a lot of, I've noticed that a lot of people who have risen to fame or infamy during this pandemic by spreading misinformation, they often, their credentials are often embellished. For example, Judy Mikovits is probably the best example of someone who has just skyrocketed to like uh, all this internet fame, uh, thanks to that 
terrible pandemic documentary. I mean, in that documentary, they say over and over again, she's one of the most accomplished biologists or scientists of her time. And it's just, what? No, you look at her publication record and it's like, it's not nothing, but it's very like, okay, very average. Uh, I would not look at her, her resume and say that she's a, one of the most distinguished scientists of all time. That I, I have met many scientists who are leaps and bounds more distinguished than her. And, and it sucks I have to go there because I feel like I'm like, you know, crapping on someone's career. And I don't want to do that because, you know, Judy Mikovits, for how terrible she is now, she did do some science at some point. And I don't want to diminish that. But when you embellish someone's credentials and hold them to a standard that they never held, then that's not okay. And, and the same thing happened recently with uh, Robert Malone. Uh, I don't know if you're probably aware of who he is. I, just offhand, I can't, I can't recall. So I, oh, I've okay. either known and forgotten or I never knew to begin with. So um, help me out here and, yeah. and help the audience. So, details. so yeah, he, he's risen to fame thanks to the Dark Horse podcast hosted by Brett Weinstein. Ah, oh, yes. Um, now, Brett Weinstein, I'm definitely familiar with. Yeah, he, he recently had a, a scientist on his show called uh, Dr. Robert Malone, and they called him the inventor of mRNA vaccines. Now, that's just not true. Uh, if you look into uh, his, his uh, credentials, his history, it turns out he did co-author some papers in the late 80s, early 90s about uh, using basically cationic lipids, the lipid nanoparticles, the same kind of thing that is used in mRNA vaccines to deliver the mRNA to the cells. Uh, he did co-author some papers where he kind of uh, did proof of principle, proof of concept experiments uh, demonstrating that technology. But the technology needed to be vastly improved from what he did uh, in order to get to the point where it could be conceived and used as a tool in vaccines. So he didn't invent mRNA vaccines. He didn't have a hand in making COVID mRNA vaccines. He's never made any vaccines. He's not an inventor of mRNA vaccines, but that's an embellished credential, which unfortunately, you know, means that I have to go back to his old work and say like, yes, he did, he did good work, but this is now reaching to a point where it's not, it's not okay to say. And again, it comes off as, you know, crapping on someone's credentials, which I don't want to do. I don't want to diminish his work. It was good work, but uh, yeah, to call him the inventor of mRNA vaccines, I, the analogy I use, it's like saying that Thomas Edison, uh, because he invented the light bulb, that means he also invented LED lights. No, it doesn't, it doesn't pass. Like, there's a there's a big gap there so so if people want to follow your work online apart from your your youtube channel debunk the, the funk where can they find you um so i'm mostly on youtube uh at debunk the funk uh i have a facebook page called uh, doc wilson debunks uh, d-o-c wilson debunks and uh i'm on twitter at debunk the funk and uh that's 
mainly where I am right now. <laughs> That's cool. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Wilson. It's been a real pleasure having you. I'm so glad we got to do this, Dave. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.